I don't know how many of you heard of the fight that the Baptist minister and the Presbyterian minister got into. They found themselves in a room together and started debating baptism. And they were debating it for hours. Just going back and forth for hours and hours. Finally, one of them turned to the other and said, Listen, clearly we could do this all day. And we're not making any headway. We're not moving forward. So why don't we just do this? Let's just agree to do this. You, you can go to your church and do baptism your way. And we, we will go to our church and we will do baptism God's way. <laughs> if you notice, because of the dynamic of our congregation, I didn't say who said that to whom. <laughs> What's the heart and soul of that joke? Well, obviously, as it comes to the way we live our lives, and as especially as it comes to the way we worship God, we want to do things God's way. If we love the Lord, if we love His Word, if we love His authority, we want to do things His way. And we can affirm that in a general principle. That's very easy for Christians to affirm. But we might be surprised how often in our lives and in our churches we actually wrestle with that. It is not uncommon for us to want to do things our way. And Saul learns this lesson the hard way today. If you would please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13. First Samuel chapter 13, if you would read with me first verses 1 through 7, and I ask you to follow along, for these are the very words of God. Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Mishmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gebeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Mishmash, to east of Bethaven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns, and some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Before we really talk about the text, there's one important sort of you could call it an academic point that needs to be made. And that is when I first began reading in verse 1, it depend, depending on the translation you have, your Bible may have read very, very, very differently from mine. Now, I would love to preach a whole sermon on what we call textual criticism. Textual criticism is the field of study where the biblical manuscripts in both Hebrew and Greek and some Aramaic are translated, are compared and translated, and it's how we basically determine what the original Bible was by comparing these manuscripts, and that is what we call the field of textual criticism. And obviously, that's a huge field. I, I by no means claim to be an expert in that field. I think I have a basic level understanding that I could teach for like an introductory class, and maybe we'll do that in this church one day. But this is a massive thing. And 
within the textual critical studies, one of the primary things you look at are what are known as textual variants. A textual variant is any time you have manuscript in any language, well, they have to be of the same language, but it doesn't have to be English, obviously, Greek or Hebrew, when you're comparing different copies of manuscripts together, any time those manuscripts do not read exactly alike, if there's any difference whatsoever, even the smallest little difference, that gets cataloged and marked down as a textual variant. We have a place where the text variates, has a variant from another manuscript. And so you will find that in all of our Hebrew, or what we call our Masoretic texts, our Hebrew Old Testament, we have some Old Testament in Greek and the Septuagint, in the New Testament especially, as we compare all these Greek manuscripts, back then, and they didn't have the blessings of resources that we have like dictionaries and the internet. And so there wasn't necessarily an established way to define or to spell a word. There wasn't necessarily a, a perfect way to, to do whatever their version of punctuation was. And so the vast majority of variants we have in all of our Bibles, both old and new, are absolutely meaningless. They're 100% meaningless. It's, it would be like, to use an English example, it would be like if you read one book that never used commas and you read the exact same book that used commas. Technically, those two copies would have hundreds, maybe even thousands of variants, but you would recognize it's, the text is really not being altered here. The vast majority of times our Bible has variations. It's overwhelmingly unimportant, which is a blessing. It's an incredibly encouraging and helping, helpful thing. Every now and then, though, there are variants that seem to matter more to people. And 1 Samuel 13, 1 is one of them. Now, I'm still going to make the case that this variation is utterly meaningless. Utterly meaningless. But because it's so popular, I just, I just feel like I have to take some time on this. Uh, the, the reason 1 Samuel 13, 1 is so debated is because our manuscript witness, when we look at all of the old manuscripts of the Old Testament, are all over the place on this verse. You'll notice the ESV, in my, this version of the ESV reads, Saul lived for one year and then became king. What does that mean? Was he one years old when he became king? Believe it or not, some manuscripts say that. Some of the manuscripts say Saul was one years old when he became king. And so most of the people doing the copies realized this was somewhere on the copy line. Someone made a mistake here. And guess what the oldest manuscripts that we have say? The, the, our most reliable, what we call our Masoretic text. Guess what, guess what the oldest ones say? Because your Bibles, let me take a, your Bibles might say anything. I don't know. Some of your Bibles might say something like 42 years. Some of your Bibles might say, and, and by the way, both numbers are disputed. So ESV says Saul lived for one year, then became king, and then he reigned for two years. Was Saul only king for two years? We read through 1 Samuel, it doesn't seem like that's the case. So both numbers, your Bible might read something different. And, the, and they're all over the place. One year, 42 years, there's... Guess what the oldest, most reliable manuscripts say? Nothing. They literally leave it blank. There's a blank space in the manuscripts. Say Saul reigned for blank space and... Which is why, by the way, the older ESV actually puts an ellipsis in the text. And the funny thing, that freaks people out. That's probably the most accurate rendition of this text. Literally, you can find ESVs that will read, Saul lived for dot, 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 and then became king, and when he reigned for dot, dot, dot over Israel. That's probably the most faithful translation we have to our most reliable manuscripts. So, 
what some commentators have done is we have other Bible passages that address Saul's reign. And so they've taken those and imputed them into the text, which is why some of our numbers are so different. The point is this, is you might have heard sometime along the lines, or you might hear someone in the future talk about how corrupt the Bible is. And this is one of their favorite texts to go to. The Bible says Saul was one year old when he became king. That's insane. You can't trust your Bibles. Well, we don't know that the Bible said that. We just know that some of the later manuscripts said that, and they're in the minority position of the other manuscripts that just leave it blank. So we don't actually, the, the point is this, is we actually don't know with assurance what the original said here. And I would tell you that that should be okay, especially because we have other Bible passages that address these things. It's really not that big of a deal. People want you to think it's a big deal when we wrestle with this reality. Are you ready for this? The Bible in its original form is perfect. Not every copy of the Bible is. Not every translation of the Bible is. That's okay. We, the, and you want to know why it's okay? The fact that we know this. That's why it's okay. What would be the problem is if we had such scant manuscript evidence that all we had was one testimony and nothing else, and we just had to assume this copy got it right. The fact that we even know what all the manuscripts say and we put it together is the blessing that almost no other religious text in the world has. I wish I could talk more. I've, I've already gone three minutes over what I wanted to say there. But let me just encourage you. Your Bible, if you don't have an ESV, might read differently than mine does in verse 1. And let me just tell you, that's really okay. And if it bothers you, then let's get together this week and let's talk more about it. But I promise you, it's, it's really okay. And I would also say this. If your whole Christian faith is hinged upon exactly how old Saul was when he became king, we definitely needed to have a talk about the gospel. But let's get into what we've read so far. So clearly, 1 Samuel 13, when we compare it to chapter 12, forgive me, chapter 13 compared to chapter 12, we have a huge jump in time. Maybe not huge, but we have a long jump in time. Well, why do I say that? Well, because there's been some developments here. We're introduced to a new character at the beginning, Jonathan, who we will see at the end of the text is referred to as Saul's son. So Saul now has a son. So some time has passed, and not only does he have a son, but his son is old enough, we saw in the text, that he's, a command, he's one of the commanders in Saul's army, and he leads an attack at, uh, uh, against the Philistine garrison. So he's obviously we're at least 18 years old, most likely older. So... Roughly 18 to, we'll say, 25 years have passed from 1 Samuel 12 to 1 Samuel 13. But we know this for other reasons. Not just the fact that he is a son, but clearly there's been some political developments. There's been some developments to the culture and to the region. And here are some of the things we know. We know that the Philistine army is back to its old glory. If you recall, at the beginning of 1 Samuel, the Philistines had a big army and... They at one time captured Israel, but God saved them and destroyed the Philistines and chased them away. Well, the Philistines are kind of back to their glory. They outsurpass Israel by a grand amount. Their army is described metaphorically as having more troops than there are sand in the seashore. They have a vast military army. And we even know that they not only outnumber Israel, but their weaponed advancement is far superior to Israel's. Read what the end of the text says. We haven't read it yet. Look with me at verse 19 to the end. Now there were no blacksmith, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. 
For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan his son had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass at Mishmash. So what do we learn here? Somehow, over the last 20 years, the Philistines have created a monopoly on the blacksmith industry. So not only were the Philistines borders to Israel, but we know that there were actually Philistines living in Israel's land, living among Israel. They did not successfully purge them the way God commanded to. They have a military post there. So whether it's referring only to their neighbors or to the Philistines that are in Israel, we don't know. But we know that they have a monopoly on weaponry and blacksmithing. So what does that mean? Israel doesn't have weapons. Now, this is an agricultural community. Back then you had to be. So they did have uh, farming equipment that they could kill somebody with. And the Philistines were even one up on that because they know there's no competition here. Right? They, there was no uh, helpful free market capitalism going on here to provide some competition. They had a, this monopoly. So not only are they not given weapons, but their farm, it's so expensive to sharpen their farming equipment. There's no competition. They jack up the prices that Israel goes to war with dull farming equipment. So Israel is outnumbered and outgunned. And in the midst of this, as we read at the beginning, Saul decides... Even in the midst of all this, it's time to go to war. There was a garrison of the Philistines within Israel, and he had his son destroy that garrison. And it was a successful victory. And so what does Saul do? Do you remember what the text says in verses 3 through 4? Let the Philistines, let the Hebrews hear it. They went through the land bragging about their victory. This did two things. His purpose was he wanted to muster confidence in the men. That's why, notice, he didn't even go to war with their full army. He wanted to show them, we can be outnumbered and still win. So he sent many troops home, and with a smaller army, uh, Jonathan, his son, leads against the garrison, and they win. So Saul is trying to create confidence and hope in his men that we can win this. And so he goes around bragging about this victory. Well, obviously, the Philistines don't take kindly to this. They've been attacked, unprovoked, as far as we know. And now Saul is bragging about it. And the text tells us over the last 20 or so years, Israel continued to become a stench to the Philistines. They don't like Israel. Saul has provoked them, so it's time for the Philistines to go to war. And so they go all out. They bring all of their army to Israel. They bring everybody there. We even know that once they get there, they send out raiding communities. They send out these little raids throughout the land of Israel. Look at what it says in verse 16 and 17, 16 through 18. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped at Mishmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shaul. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. So the Philistines have encamped in Mishmash and they're now sending out three different raiding parties to cover the land of Israel. So they've got this big army ready for war and these little raiding communities that are wreaking havoc throughout Israel. 
And so Saul has found himself in the heel of a dilemma. And what do I mean by that? Well, I want us to read and really focus now on verses 9 through 15. Saul has found himself in a bit of a predicament now. Or forgive me, let's begin in verse 8. Speaking of Saul, it says this, He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Mishmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gebeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him about 600 men. 600 verse thousands. And Samuel's not even on his side anymore either. Now, why has Samuel abandoned Saul? Well, we have to imply something in the text here. We know that apparently God commanded through Samuel that there would be a seven-day waiting period before battle and that Samuel would come as the priest and the prophet and offer the sacrifice for the Lord's favor. This, sounds, this should sound familiar to you. This is exactly what God commanded to happen before Saul was anointed. So clearly God has established a pattern with Saul that before anointings, before battles, there's a seven-day period of faith and then you meet with Samuel and you offer the sacrifices. So clearly this has been established and Saul is being held accountable for this information. And the text tells us that Saul was trying to be obedient. He gathered and he waited. And the seventh day came and he kept waiting. And he's growing impatient because things are not going well. The troops are scattering. They're fleeing. The Israelites are fearful. They're running. They're hiding. We read at the beginning that they crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. They're hiding in the caves. His people are cowering and abandoning him. The Philistines are pressing in. They've encamped in Israel. Raiding communities are going out. And he's sitting there twiddling his thumb waiting for Samuel. Saul takes matters into his own hands. He disobeys Samuel's command and he offers the sacrifice himself. It's interesting, Saul is essentially treating the sacrifice the same way the leaders of Israel treated the Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember when we talked about that in the first battle with the Philistines? Things weren't going well, so just bring out the Ark. This is different, but it's, it's similar. Things aren't going well, okay, I'll just offer the sacrifice. Like it's this magical potion that's just going to save us. Now, before we are too hard on Saul, I do want us to some degree to ask ourselves, what do you think you would have done? 
My, my intention here, to, I want us to sympathize with Saul for a moment. And my intention is in no way, shape, or form to excuse what he did. Nor is it to take Saul's side over God's. That's not what I'm doing. But I think it's important for our own pride's sake. For the sake of our own pride, to establish our own humility, to at least sympathize with him and say, you know what, I don't know what I would have done in his shoes. You remember, it's not just his life that's on the line, it's all of Israel that's on the line. And it doesn't look good. They're losing badly. And Samuel's delaying. Why doesn't Samuel have a little bit more urgency? <laughs> They're trying to fight a war here. He, he is in a tight spot. And I think it's okay to admit that. This is a difficult situation. But we know that God does not excuse him. How do we know that? Well, Samuel shows up speaking on behalf of God, and Samuel is disappointed. And the sad thing is, what does the text say? When did Samuel show up? Right after he offered the sacrifice. If he would have just been a little bit more patient, he would have been okay. But he gets impatient and fearful, and he disobeys God's command. And Samuel shows up, and Samuel calls him a fool. He's a fool. Samuel is not happy because Samuel takes God's commandments seriously. Samuel takes obedience to God seriously, especially as it pertains to the worship of God, to the holy and sacred sacrifice. He takes this very seriously. And I think that this severe reaction from God also, not only is it because obedience is so important and because the sacrifice was so sacred, but I think God had high expectations for Saul. He's the king. He's the leader of the people. He's the most important person in Israel. I think God had very high expectations for him to lead the way in showing trust in God and obedience to his commandments. But Saul failed. He disobeyed, and the punishment is severe. He now has experienced the death of his dynasty. God has not rejected him from being a king, but he has rejected his lineage from sitting on the throne. Samuel, or forgive me, Saul has lost his dynasty. And I, let me just make a brief side note. This is really sad because we're introduced in this text to before this unlawful sacrifice was permitted, we're introduced to the person who is supposed to sit on the throne. His name is Jonathan. And you're going to find as we read through 1 Samuel, he's a good man. Jonathan is a good man. And if I were a betting man, I would bet he would have made a good king. But he's been robbed of that because sin has consequences. And when we sin, it doesn't just affect us. It affects everyone around us. And here's one example of that. A good man named Jonathan has lost his right to the throne. The dynasty is dead. And the text tells us God's already got someone in mind. I already know who I want the next king of Israel to be. And the description of this man tells us exactly what Saul's problem is. We are now comparing Saul to this future king, who many of you probably know who this is about, because this phrase, a man after God's own heart, becomes an important phrase in the Bible. The New Testament uses it, but still. Just in case you don't know, that's okay. I'm going to leave you with bated breath. But there's another king in the line, and this king is described as being after God's own heart. So what was Saul's issue? 
What's the heart of the issue here? Saul was not seeking God's heart. He was concerned about his safety. He was concerned about the safety of his country. He was concerned about the war. And all of those things are okay to be concerned about. But there's something that should have been more of a concern than any of those things. What does God want from me? What is God's heart in this situation? Samuel did not, if I keep doing that, forgive me. Saul did not seek that. God wants a king who seeks his own heart. So he offers this unlawful sacrifice and his dynasty is dead. There's three things that I want us to take from this lesson. This unlawful sacrifice, there are three important things that I think we can directly apply to our lives right now, right here today. What do we learn from this sad story? Well, the first thing we learn, as I take a sip, is this. Number one, no sin is a small sin. No sin is a small sin. Why do I say that? If you are anything like me, maybe not. Maybe you're more pious than I am, and I don't say that insultingly. It's, it very well could be true. But it's very easy for us in our human frailty to read this text and see this as one of the many examples in the Old Testament where God, from our perspective, overreacts. Right? We, Saul is he's in a tough spot. Why can't God show some leniency? It's, it's not like he rejected the sacrifice altogether. Right? He didn't just say, forget it. Just forget it. Forget Samuel. Forget it. Let's go. He still offered it. He, he sought the favor of the Lord. Like, okay, he did something wrong, but does he really deserve to have his whole family rejected from the dynasty? And this is kind of early on. Like, he, from, relatively speaking, he hasn't even been king that long. And so far, his track record's pretty good. He makes one mistake and he loses everything. Doesn't God seem to be overreacting? But I think we are reminded here that obedience to God is not a small thing. God is not overreacting. It's that our natural inclination is to underreact to sin. Now, let me be very clear. This is not to say that every sin is equal. That's not what I'm saying. That's a popular thing I hear Christians say. It's not true. The Bible is very, very clear that the day of judgment will be rendered according to works. People will be repaid for their deeds. Hell and heaven alike will not be equal experiences for people. There are some sins that are worse than others. This is clear not just on judgment day. This is clear in God's Old Testament law. Notice God, even in the Old Testament Israel, they had different punishments for different crimes. There were some crimes that were so serious it's a capital offense, kill them. But God didn't just say, listen, all sin is equal. If someone has a sin, kill them. No, the whole principle of the eye for an eye, what does that recognize? Not everything is equally bad. If your child steals some bubble gum from the grocery store, that's a serious thing. We need to sit down and we need to have an intervention. If your child murders their sibling, I'm handling that very differently. And that's not just because the state says to. That's because one of those things is significantly worse than the other. Significantly. So I'm not saying that all sins are exactly equal, but what I am saying is that all sins are very serious. There is no such thing as a small sin. So in our minds, we don't want to have small sins versus big sins. We want to have big sins versus really big sins. But they're all serious. They're all worthy of horrible judgment. 
They all separate us from God. The book of James addresses this very issue. And James tells us the reason every sin matters is because at its core, every sin is doing the same thing. And it's all disobeying God's law. No matter what sin you commit, you're doing that. You're disobeying a holy God. James says this, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Now, why would he say that? Well, he explains in verse 11, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So what's James's argument? No matter which law you break, no matter which of God's commandments you break, you're ultimately doing the same thing. You're breaking his holy law. Everyone stands before God lawbreakers. So it doesn't matter what sin you committed, every sin makes you a transgressor of the law. And that means every sin makes you worthy of separation from God. Because he is holy, and the second you break his law, you are not. Every sin separates us from God, so every sin is a big deal. And so I would encourage us to do this. And and this is not me speaking at you. I, I am included myself in this, okay? But I think we all have to confront ourselves with the very unfortunate reality that in the Christian life, it is very easy for us to create a whole list of what some people call respectable sins. It is very easy for us to have sins that, yeah, we know they're wrong, but we don't really take them that seriously. We're not really trying to repent of those things. Somebody says a curse word or somebody has an abortion or somebody's a homosexual, and we come down very hard. These are evil, don't do that. And then we spend the rest of our day gossiping about our church members. Peter describes some of the enemies God, some of the enemies as their God is their belly. Gluttony's a sin. How many Americans do you think repent of gluttony ever? There, there are a whole host of sins, myself included, that just quite frankly, we're just, <laughs> we're really not that bothered by them. In our own lives and the lives of others, we really don't care. What do we learn from 1 Samuel 13? We should care. And so I would encourage you this week to look inward and start to ask yourself, what are some of the respectable sins in your life? I think for everyone it might be different. When I I gave the examples, by the way, of gluttony and gossip, I I didn't have anyone in mind. Not passive-aggressively trying to call somebody out. I just, those are just, to me, culturally things that we don't ever hear people really repent of. So I'm assuming, probably to a lot of people, they don't even think about whether they're committing it or not. And so I would just ask you personally, like, what is it, what are maybe, go through this week and pray about it. Ask the Lord to reveal to you, what are some of the sins in your life that, like Saul, you just think this really isn't that big a deal. And you need a Samuel to come along and say, no, this is a big deal. No sin is a small sin. That's the first thing we learn. The second thing we learn is this. It's related, but it is different. There is never a justification for sin. There is never a justification for sin. You see, notice Saul's behavior after he visits. Samuel comes, and we have no indication that he's cowering like a dog. Oh no, I'm about to get in trouble. He just goes out and greets him. Samuel, how's it going, man? Come on in. We're getting ready. And then Samuel comes in, what has happened here? You fool. And what does he do? He doesn't say, okay, you know what, I know it was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. I'm sorry. 
He thought he was okay. He thought he was vindicated. He said, what do you mean, Samuel? What was I supposed to do? My hands were tied. Listen, I wanted to obey God. I wanted to. I waited for you. I was waiting for so long. I wanted to obey. I really did. But you left me no choice because you delayed. And God left me no choice because he wouldn't stop our enemies. I didn't want to disobey. I had to disobey. He's got an excuse. He has a justification. And does that make Samuel go, oh, you know, now that I think about it, you're right. I probably, should, probably would have done the same thing, actually. I'm sure God understands. Samuel doesn't buy that excuse. And guess what? That excuse might even make a lot of sense to us. Like I said, I, I don't know what I would have done. But nonetheless, we learn that there's no excuse. But this is what sin loves to do. When we are engaged in sin, it is so our conscience knows it's wrong, but our minds almost never do. We almost always find ways to justify our sin. We almost always have excuses. And by the way, this is ancient. The very first sin that's ever created. What's Adam's response when God confronts them? The woman you gave me. The woman you gave me, God. So it's either her fault or your fault, but it ain't my fault. She did it and you gave her to me. It's, her, it's not my fault. Excuses, excuses, excuses. We love to justify our sin. Yeah, you did this, but, but, but. No, no buts. No buts. There's never an excuse. We learn that from 1 Samuel 13. Even when it seems to make sense, even when it seems necessary, that is the devil. That's a lie from the devil. There is no excuse for sin. So the first thing we learn is that there is no small sin. The second thing we learn, there is no excuse for sin. I want us to focus our third one on, take a little bit of a different route. There's a third thing that I think we learn about this text, and it's very important. And this is a Reformation principle known as the regulative principle of worship. So we have these very, very easy things, and then I throw a theological term at you. The regulative principle of worship. Let me break this down. Saul's sin was more than just some general sin. It specifically was a sin against the sacrifice. This is what we would call a ceremonial sin. He sinned against the ordained worship of God. This was a malpractice in worship, not just character. The sacrifice was a holy and important thing to God. Remember, it typified Christ. So in a very real sense, to blaspheme the sacrifice was to blaspheme Christ. And we see this in the New Testament. Read 1 Corinthians. Paul says that when we blaspheme this, when we treat this with contempt, we are treating the body and blood of Christ with contempt. Same thing here. This, this, this was a, a sacrificial sin. Not just any sin. This was a sin against how to worship God. And so what this begins to tell us is that God takes how we worship Him very seriously. When we think of obedience to God, it's not just in our daily lives, and our daily spiritual walk. Obedience to God also matters as we gather as a church and decide how do we worship Him today. What does God want from us? That matters to God. We cannot disgrace the worship of God by ignoring what He has said. 
and choosing instead forms that are a little bit more pragmatic or a little bit more practical. And so that's why I say a great way of applying Saul's lesson is through a Reformation principle known as the regulative principle of worship. Before I give a strict definition of this, let me just be very clear that this is a doctrine that has developed since the time of the Reformation. And even within people who hold to it and people who don't, there's some difference in how to apply it. So the reason I say that is, you know, if you were to go home, oh, Colin used this word, I want to go home and research it. You might look it up like, and, oh, I don't know if we do that. I don't know if we apply it this way. That's what I'm saying. There, there is some gray area on the borders. But there's a heart of the RPW that I think is crucial and I think all Christians need to be prepared to embrace. Let me give the technical definitions and then break down into its heart, its kernel. The London Baptist Confession of Faith phrases it this way, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. How do we break that down? It's essentially saying this. How does God want you to worship him? I don't know. Open up your Bible and ask him. Ask him. Don't make it up. Ask him. We don't want to make up ways to worship God. We want to pursue him. We want to pursue his word and ask God what he wants from us. We want to worship God as God himself desires. This is a clear principle established in the Old Testament. We debate the regulative principle today, but no one can debate it in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it was very, very clear. God meticulously, painfully dictated very small details of their worship. He told them how to build the temple, how big it needs to be, how tall it needs to be, where everything needs to go. It was meticulous. You must do this. So meticulous that, that Saul was not even permitted to do the sacrifice himself. That's not his job. He did the sacrifice. He probably even walked through it exactly as Samuel would have walked through it. But he messed up one key ingredient. God meticulously gave them, this is how you worship me. And it was a serious thing to say, that's a little burdensome. Yeah, God, this is kind of overkill at this point, don't you think? Now, there is a difference between Old Testament worship and New Testament worship. And I readily grant that we have more freedom in how we worship God in the New Testament than we do in the Old. I readily grant that. As a matter of fact, the brilliant minds that began our conversation about the regulative principle also admitted that. Let me prove it with a quote from John Calvin. John Calvin gives us his definition of the regulative principle and then admits there's some flexibility to it. He says this, If the papists plead, and, and let me also say, when we translate John Calvin into English, uh, we typically give these kind of high language. Sometimes it's kind of hard to understand, but I promise I, I'll, I'll give to you the, the Spark Notes version. But it's just so beautiful, I want us to hear it. I just love the way he writes. If the papists plead expediency for all of their ceremonies, I ask, are they better judges of what is expedient than God himself? Let us entertain the firm conviction that the highest advantage as well as the highest propriety will be found in whatever God has determined. In aiding the ignorant, we must employ not those methods which the fancy of men have been pleased to contrive, 
but those which had been fixed by God themselves, who unquestionably has left out nothing that was fitted to assist their weakness. Let this shield suffice for repelling any objections God has judged otherwise, and his purpose supplies to us the place of all arguments, unless it be supposed that men are capable of devising better aids than those which God has provided and which he afterward threw aside as useless. What's the Sparknotes version of that? Calvin is criticizing the Roman Catholic Church because they have invented a ton of ways to worship God. Every single day is a holiday. Every single Sunday is a new holiday. And they have all these ceremonies and feasts and different bodily articulations. They do all of these things which don't come from Scripture. And one of their arguments is that these things are expedient. What does that mean? They're helpful. They help us. They encourage us. So Calvin says this, if they're going to plead expediency for their ceremonies, if, if, if they think their ceremonies are very, very helpful, they aid the lay people. Calvin asked this rhetorical question, why didn't God think of them if they're so helpful? Are you better at figuring out what your people need than God is? Listen, we do, we do this thing here and we do this thing here. Where, where does God say that? Well, God hasn't said that, but we've just found it really, really helpful. Is that news to God? Is God going, oh man, I wish I would have thought of that. That's a great haul. That's a great thing to do. Wow. No, Calvin's point is, I agree. I want our worship to be helpful. And I think the best opinion on that is God's. So let us entertain the firm conviction that the highest advantage as well as the highest propriety will be found in whatever God has determined. But notice after all of that, guess what he says? He says this. Let it be carefully observed, however. Paul does not merely say that the yoke which has been laid upon the Jews is removed from us, but expressly lays down a distinction in the government which God has commanded to be observed. So what he's saying there is, it's not just that the Old Testament sacrifices and rituals are gone, but a whole new form of how to worship God has been implemented. And in that form, we do have liberty that they didn't have. That's why he says this, I acknowledge that we are now at liberty to all outward matters, but only on the condition that the church shall not be burdened with a multitude of ceremonies, nor Christianity confounded with Judaism. Now you can think Calvin's contradicting himself. That's totally fine. My, here, my point here is not to hold up Calvin as the infallible interpreter of God's word, but it's merely to say this, that there is flexibility in the regulative principle of worship because the New Testament gives us freedom. The New Testament says things like one person considers one day holy, others consider all day alike, so be it. So God has not meticulously dictated our worship in the New Testament the way he has in the old. But there is a general principle here that I believe and I'm teaching to us we need to hold on to. And that general principle is our first and foremost priority as it comes to how do we worship God must always be this. What has he said? We do not want to show up on Sundays and get together in a committee and determine what we all enjoy. How do people like, what's going to bring more people in the church? The regulative principle is essentially teaching us this, that when we ask questions like, well, what works? We're asking the wrong question. 
The right question is seeking after the heart of God. What does God want from us? Why is this so important? Because I would argue today that many of the battles, the church wars, the worship wars happening in evangelicalism ultimately boil down to far too many churches who put pragmatism, practicality before the word of God. And that's Saul's mindset. What did Saul ultimately say? I know I'm supposed to wait for Samuel, but it's not working. It's total pragmatism here. It's not working, so it's time to do things differently. Obedience to God just doesn't work in this context. And this is exactly the mentality that many, many churches have. You know, you shouldn't sing hymns because they're old and boring. And studies show that churches who switch from hymns to contemporary music double over a six-month pace at a far higher rate than churches that don't. Hymns don't work. Theologically sound music doesn't work. It's not practical. It's not pragmatic. So you know what we say? You and your surveys can go kick rocks. I'm not interested in what works. I'm not interested in what's practical. What has God said? God tells us to sing, and He tells us what our songs need to do. He tells us what our songs need to accomplish. So any song, whether new or old, whether Him or not, if it doesn't accomplish what the Scriptures tell it to accomplish, throw it out. Even if it's the most popular song on the CCLI index, throw it out. We are not interested in what works. What has God's word said? Now, there is room, by the way, because let me talk about this freedom issue. God has not, like I said, he has not dictated every single thing we do. So there is a place, hear me out, for pragmatism. I'm not saying all practicality, all pragmatism thrown out the window. Let me give you one example. We start our church at 1030. Is that wrong? Why not nine? Why not seven? Why not 4 p.m.? What's our first question? What does God say on the subject? You scour through the scriptures, he doesn't say anything on the subject. He tells us what day to worship on, the first day of the week. That's the apostolic principle. So we worship on the first day of the week, but he doesn't tell us the time. He doesn't dictate that to us. So guess what? We have freedom to choose. If we wanted to, we could meet at 3 a.m. But guess what? That wouldn't be practical. That's, that's a burden on families with small children. That's a burden on me. So don't hear me saying there is room for us to be practical and pragmatic in the New Testament. But it's a matter of priorities. When we have a clear word from God, that's our priority, and then we fill in the gaps with pragmatism. What many churches today do is they have a clear view of pragmatism, and then they fill in the gaps with God's word. It's out of order. Do you want the mind of Saul or do you want the mind of Samuel? The mind of Samuel says this, when God has spoken, when he has told us to do something, we do it. And I don't care if it doesn't work. Saul's mind is this isn't working. I know God said it. It's not working. Let's not do it. And I think from that, now we need to have the reasonable conversation about when we start inventing, well, let's worship God like this. Let's worship God like this. Let's worship God like this. We need to say this. Okay, we might be allowed to do that. We have some freedom here, but we need to ask this question. Do we really think 
that if God really wanted us to do this as a church, he would have left it out of his holy sufficient word. That's an important conversation for us to have. So the three things we learn from 1 Samuel 13 and can apply to our lives right now is number one, there is no small sin. Number two, there is no good excuse for sin. And number three, we need to worship God as God has instructed to us to worship Him. We must worship God as He has instructed. So always choose God's Word over your own intuitions, pragmatic conclusions, and desires. Never take obedience lightly and always, both in the church and in your personal life, seek the heart of God. How does God want to be worshipped today? How does God want to be worshipped throughout the week? How does God want to be worshipped in our churches? May we as a church and as individuals continue to seek the heart of God.